This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there, great to have you along today. Shortly, the Premier, Roger Cook, was going to be here to say that there is going to be continuing to be an obligation on all landholders to not knowingly disturb Aboriginal cultural heritage. And obviously this is in response to the Premier's announcement yesterday that the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act 2021 is going to be revoked and replaced with the original laws from 1972 with some key amendments to that 1972 Act. Later today, this hour after half past 12, you'll hear reaction from Indigenous groups, pastoralists, the resources sector, and I also want to hear from you. What changes, what amendments need to be made to that old Act from 1972 to make this workable for everyone? Let me know on text 0448 922 Six past 12 here on the Country Hour and also today and shortly you'll hear about a petition that's aimed at American lawmakers that's calling for major restrictions to be placed on Australian and New Zealand lamb imports. We'll get to that shortly. First though, starting in the midwest of the state today, as the town of Minganyu, 360 kilometres north of Perth, is inviting you to come along to the Minganyu Expo marking the start of the Field Day events here in Western Australia. And it's a big one this year as the Expo celebrates its 40th birthday. The ABC's Glenn Barnden is at the Field Days. Glenn, what's the mood like this year? Well, it's pretty good. It's pretty good overall. We know it's a tougher and tighter year, particularly in the north and the east, than it has been in recent years. But farmers are still going about their business, are aware that we've had some pretty warm days in recent times. We've got a nice 21-degree day here at Minanew today, but we're expecting 27, 28 tomorrow, which is getting hot, and we've had some hot days in recent times. So that's pushed a few of the crops along a little bit. We didn't get as much rain out of this last lot as we would have liked. Last week was good, but we needed another repeat probably of last week uh, every day for the next uh, month, really. And what are you hearing from the farmers as they're walking around and uh, kicking tyres and checking out the equipment, the machinery there, Glenn? Is there much interest this year? There certainly is. They're a bit philosophical. They've said we're coming off three or four really good years in this part of the world and they understand that this is a, a tougher and tighter year. They're just hoping to get something back as the year progresses. They're still looking to get some machinery into the paddocks. Talking to a machinery dealer this morning and they were saying that they're still, you know, a backlog, 18 months to two years for some machinery. So some farms are still waiting for that machinery to be delivered. So they're hopefully not far away. But it's an opportunity for the dealers to get out here and showcase what they have. And we spoke to Caden Caddo from McIntosh and Son this morning, and he was saying that it's important to be here in the good years, but it's also here to be important to be here in the ordinary years. And that's why they put a physical presence here, put a lot of machinery here, put a lot of staff here. And of course, it costs them a lot of money to get to the field days, but they still think it's worthwhile and uh, still very much in favour of supporting the local community. And Glenn, what's what's the interest in? Is it headers? Is it new tractors? I think it's across the board, Belinda. I think everyone is still, there's a bit pent-up demand. A lot of people haven't been able to get the machinery they wanted initially. Some of them have ordered the machinery. It isn't here yet. But I think across the board, 
it's probably a time for people to uh, regather and uh, find out what they've got. There's still a big demand for good used machinery, so there's still an opportunity there for people to trade over. And of course, uh, there is, this year is going to be tighter than the years previously, but they still need the machinery to get the job done when they have the opportunity to do the job. And it is the big 40th for the Expo this year. Any special plans around the 40th celebrations? Yeah, they had a lot of the people that initially had the vision here and they've spoken to them today and it's really nice to see them around. A lot of people who, you know, put this field day together and when they set out, they didn't really know what they were going to get, but they're pretty proud of what it has achieved, what it has become. And it's lovely to see many of them here that put many, many hours in over those years. Of course, 1983 was around the time it got underway and it's been able to keep going for the most part. I think there was a year where it had COVID problems. But overall, it's been a two-day, then it went to a one-day. It's now back to a two-day event, so today and tomorrow. And I think tomorrow will probably be a busier day because Thursday, closer to the weekend, and people seem to think they can bring the family along and have a little bit of an early start to the weekend. And it's also just a great chance. You know, once you get there, of course, you've got the expo. But on the way there, you get to check out the wildflowers. What's the season like this year? It's not all that great at the moment. We don't expect it to be as good as in previous years. It'll still be okay, but we won't see the mats of everlastings. Uh, They're not around as they were in previous years. So it is a different year all around, but there'll still be something there. But I don't think you'll see the mats of the pink and uh, white everlastings that we've seen in the last couple of years. But there's still nice native plants out there and there's still plenty of opportunities for people to enjoy it, but it's just not the everlasting showcase that it has been in recent times. Yeah, it's more one of those seasons where you actually have to stop the car and get out and and have a really close look at them. You can't sort of see it as you're flashing by in the car. Uh, Glenn, you enjoy the rest of the expo. Thanks so much for spending some time here on the Country Hour. Always lovely to catch up, Linda. Thank you for your time. Glenn Barnden at this year's Minganyu Expo. 11 past 12. And as Glenn was just saying, there is quite a bit of interest at the Minganyu Expo this year in uh, tractors and machinery. And there's a, even a bit of a backlog that some of the dealers are still getting through to get that equipment to the farmers in that part of Western Australia. And to some extent, that sort of reflected on the national stage too. There are a lot of farmers who might be buying new headers this year, but many are parking plans for a new tractor. And that is a big change from last year when farmers splashed out over $2 billion on 19,000 new tractors. And that sort of tractor spending spree hasn't been seen since the 1980s. Gary Northover is head of the Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia and thinks the tractor market is getting back to pre-COVID times. The previous two years, in fact, we were off the charts for the industry and uh, this uh, uh, first six months of 2023 have seen a tapering of that, so much so that uh, we're about 16% behind at June for the same time last year. So that represents still 7,500 tractors. So uh, what we're seeing so far is not necessarily a a complete uh, meltdown, but more of a tapering back to pre COVID levels, I guess, at this stage. What do you think is behind that slowdown? Yeah, a couple of things. I think the uh, temporary full expensing program came to an end in June, and that was certainly a, a great incentive for our industry for the couple of years that it was at 
you know, the sort of levels that it was at. So that's come to an end. We've seen price increases that really have been uh, up in the sort of order of 20%, which is going to have a little bit of a dampening effect on demand, although perhaps not, uh, not too dramatic. Uh, but interest rates com- combined with that, certainly in the smaller uh, ranges, is, is having an impact. And look, there's probably just a little bit of caution about the climate. You know, I think you've been talking about the prospect of an El Nino, and I think some farmers are probably taking a bit of a wait-and-see attitude uh, with their purchasing uh, on that front. So, yeah, there's a couple of factors uh, sort of contributing to this. So while things have steadied there for tractors, are there any other machinery that has perhaps had more interest, more so than the previous year? The surprise packet has been combines, Um or maybe it isn't a surprise to the uh, the grain industry, but they're certainly bounced this first half where um, we're seeing um, about a 70% increase in harvester sales compared to the same time last year, which tells us that uh, the forward ordering program has been really effective and successful and, and dealers managed to get stock into the market. So right now, you know, we're looking at an in excess of 1,200 harvester um, year this year, which is uh, a really big one for the industry, normally about 1,000. Uh, harvesters in a year is a great year. Do you have any figures on particular states that are buying more harvesters this year that could be a, a reflection of maybe looking at some good harvest results? Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, WA is the engine room for uh, combine sales and uh, they're up 20% uh, on the sort of rolling 12 months if you want to take that sort of level. So that, they've been consistently strong. South Australia is another strong market. It's up 34%. So put those two together, they, they represent over half of the activity. But even so, Victoria's pretty healthy, um, up 20%. Queensland, a healthy 47% up. New South Wales is probably one spot where it's just been pretty steady, and uh, but still at a very healthy level. So healthy right across the board, to be honest. Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia Executive Director Gary Northover with Cara Jeffrey. Quarter past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasketti on ABC Local Radio WA. A petition aimed at American lawmakers is calling for major restrictions to be placed on Australian and New Zealand lamb imports. Now, the call comes from RCAF, which describes itself as the largest body representing producers of cattle and sheep in America. CEO Bill Bullard says Australian lamb has brought the U.S. sheep industry to its knees. Well, the United States sheep industry has been decimated over the past two or three decades, and we now have the smallest inventory of sheep and lambs in the history of our industry. Just in the past four decades, we've lost 62% of our uh, sheep inventory. We've lost over 60% of all of our full-time commercial sheep producers. But at the same time, we have a significant increase, an explosion of imported lamb and mutton, primarily from Australia, but also from New Zealand and several other countries that uh, export small volumes of lamb to the United States. But as a result of these imports, what we've seen is as our domestic production declines, the imports increase. And while we have seen strong demand for lamb in the United States with the consumption increasing year after year for the past decade, all of the increase in the increased consumption uh, is, is being met with imported lamb and mutton. Right now, approximately 74% of all the lamb and mutton consumed in America is, uh, is of foreign origin. 
And we need to reverse that in order to maintain our nation's food security interests. How do you do that? What are you calling on politicians in America to do? Well, we're asking for relief from the unrestrained and uh, uh, mounting imports that are leveraging down domestic prices and eliminating economic opportunities for our domestic producers. What relief can the government provide? Are there programs that they could enact to help give support to producers? Well, under the Trade Act of 1974, there's a provision that allows for import relief when the volume of imports are a substantial cause of serious injury to an industry. And so we are asking our government uh, to review the facts and data and to conclude that the U.S. sheep industry has been inundated with uh, lower-priced imports that are forcing producers out of business and threatening the viability of our domestic sheep industry. Actions like this have been taken before. Uh, I think President Donald Trump used uh, actions similar to this to protect the solar industry in the United States. Uh, Do you hold out much hope from politicians or the president to use actions similar to protect the lamb industry here? Well, yes, we do. Um, in fact, that's that's one good example. Another was there's a washing machine case, manufacturing case, uh, that also received uh, import relief. And so that is what we're seeking. But importantly, our industry has been so decimated that if we were to obtain, you know, stiff import or restrictions such as tariffs or tariff break quotas, we would not be able to meet domestic demands. So we're asking for a phase-in over a 10-year period that will allow our domestic industry to recapture at least 50% of our domestic marketplace. Right now, we're at 26%. So we want to double our domestic production in order to meet the demand for lambs here in the U.S. Is this not just the result of free trade? Is this not what just happens when there is more free trade around the world? There will be winners and losers. And in your case, the lamb industry there is the loser. Well, that's exactly the case. Under this uh, theory of globalization and the free trade agreements are the tool, um, what you are expecting to achieve is that the production of any particular good will migrate to any country or region that has a comparative advantage. The failure of that theory, though, is that it it ignores uh, domestic food security needs. It ignores uh, the economic needs of much of rural America who are dependent on a viable livestock sector. And when that becomes threatened, we need to change uh, the nature of of our international trade policies. CEO of RCAF, Bill Bullard. Meat industry analyst Simon Quilty from Global Agritrends says the examples of the solar panel and washing machine cases in America shows there is a precedent for import restrictions being used in the US to protect local industry. But... He isn't too concerned they'll be used here. Look, to be honest, I think this is, you know, wishful thinking on their behalf. I think our relationship and our trade agreements with America would outshine and be too strong for this to get any momentum, but we can't ignore it. There is precedent, but I think that this is a bit of a long shot by our calf, um, and I hope Hopefully, it will have no legs. So be alert, but not alarmed for the Australian lamb industry. Exactly. 
Simon Quilty, he's from Global Agritrends and he was ending that story from Warwick Long. 20 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Shortly we'll get to the headlines and also catching up with the Premier, Roger Cook, just following up from yesterday's big decision to scrap the new Act, the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, and go back to the 1972 Act with a few key amendments. We'll hear the Premier's thoughts on that a day after that decision shortly here on the Country Hour. First, though, I think seed companies might have had a few more inquiries about barley in the last few days. And obviously this follows China's announcement on Friday to drop its 80% tariff on Australian barley. Now, a lot of WA farmers obviously grow barley to make some money, but it's also an important rotational crop. Richard Avery works for Farmgate as a grain market advisor and thinks a lot of growers will increase barley plantings next season. Straight away on the back of the news, local feed barley prices dropped roughly $70 odd a tonne, uh, very, very significant. It was still at a time when a lot of barley was going in the ground, so we did see growers make planting changes you know, essentially on the fly that season, and so the 2020 barley area did drop off substantially, and it's continued to decline uh, for the last three years as well, uh, through to today. By how much has this decline been? Uh, we're growing roughly 20% less barley area now than what we were in 2019. At the same time, we're growing roughly a million hectares more crop. So coming into this new year, now that China could be another major market again, what are you expecting WA growers to do? Uh, look, we're very early on in, in this um, this phase. So I think most growers will still be waiting to see. Uh, obviously, planting decisions have already been done, crops growing. Now it's just marketing decisions through through until harvest time, where a lot can happen, right? And um, we've still got our biggest exporter that, that's still locked out of China. Um, that's an issue that sort of needs to be resolved for, for WA growers to have a lot of confidence going forward with barley. So look, and, and it'll come down to what the other crops do as well. If if canola and wheat remain relatively profitable crops, and we'll probably see those, you know, stay fairly high in the rotations. Um, at the same time, the, you know, the sheep industry's got its fair share of challenges at the moment too. So, you know, there's not too many growers out there building sheep numbers at the moment, and maybe they're looking to barley or maybe they're looking to other, other options. So, In the last three years, was there any barley going to China? From Australia. So there is actually some reported... There was a bit of a loophole to a degree that, that barley could come in and then head across the land border in, in a different form. So it could, for example, it could have been malted in Vietnam and then head north, and that's one way of getting it into China, essentially the same product. Uh, but in a different form. I don't have those numbers on me. I, I'm not aware of any of the tariffs being paid. So, you know, obviously it could have physically been done, but it was 80% tariff. Mm. It's, I'm pretty confident saying that there was no tariffs paid. How much went across the border, I don't know. What sort of changes have you seen in the market since the announcement happened on Friday that the tariffs would be lifted? Sure. So we've seen a significant jump, uh, particularly in old crop barley prices, which I was quite surprised with. But um, but yeah, new season as well, uh, roughly sort of eight to ten percent across the board, which is which is great to see. The the one grade that has been left behind, and that's been desiccated barley. So that's now trading at a sort of thirty odd dollar discount uh, for new crop because China's the the market that has the issue with glyphosate on our barley. So yeah, short term anyway, it's been really positive for feed and and malt grains, ag grades. Having the tariffs on Australian barley for the last couple of years, what has that actually meant for China? China's seen a significant ramp up in their 
costs of acquiring product. And not only that, but just the security of supply as well. So buying grain out of out of new markets, particularly in uh, countries like sort of France, for example, which, is, which has been a huge uh, origin of grain for China, during a time of COVID and high freight costs, it's all been quite a challenge for them, is my understanding. The exact extent of, of the, the domestic malt, in, like the damage to the domestic malt industry within China, it's not reported at all, and it's yet to be sort of quantified in any sort of reasonable terms as well. China remains a, a major, major malt production country, but also consumption as well. Probably the only losers out of this is maybe French and Canadian barley growers. Richard Avery from Farmgate Advisory speaking to Sophie Johnson. 25 past 12 here on The Country Hour. And the Premier, Roger Cook, says there'll continue to be an obligation on all landholders to not knowingly disturb Aboriginal cultural heritage. He says resources will be available to assist property owners to understand any sites of cultural significance on their property and also how to manage those sites. This follows the Premier's announcement yesterday that the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act 2021 will be revoked and replaced with the original laws from 1972 with some key amendments. Roger Cook says when it comes to sites of cultural significance, farmers want to do the right thing. I've never met a farmer that said that they wanted to disturb Aboriginal cultural heritage. I think the overwhelming majority of of Western Australians believe that this is an important project that we must do together. And that is why we are going to take a proactive role as the government to assist Aboriginal people and landowners understand the uh, sites of significance, assist them to identify them, conserve them and preserve them for the future. And I'm not accusing landowners or farmers of wanting to destroy cultural heritage, but the law does allow them to refuse a survey if they want to. Is that right? Well, what we would be doing was working with everyone in the community to understand uh, where those sites of of cultural significance are. The incidence of of, um, Aboriginal cultural heritage sites on already cultivated farm land is very minimal. It's interesting to note that in the last decade, just three particular Aboriginal sites have been identified and addressed by the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act across the entire farming and pastoral lease areas. And that's because, by and large, these areas are already well known. There have been significant disturbance already. And so our focus will be on those areas where there's still yet to be an understanding around the the significance of Aboriginal cultural heritage sites and to assist the community to preserve them. And and doing a statewide cultural heritage survey, that's going to take decades, isn't it? Well, it will will be a long-term project, but I think it's one that's overdue. I've never understood, Nadia, why we do not have state governments more proactively involved in this process. We like to go out and preserve museum pieces and things of that nature and believe that the state has a role to do that. But for some reason, we've always stood back and taken a very passive approach to understanding where Aboriginal cultural sites are. A great example of this is that recently a government department wanted to do some public infrastructure works in the Kinjara area. And to their horror and dismay, there was very little information on the public record that they could work with to understand where the Pinjara massacre sites were 
and what areas they needed to preserve as part of that process. So this is a, that's a good example of how the state should be more involved in these matters. Doesn't that also prove that this legislation that you're reverting back to has been pretty useless for the last 50 years because in a lot of circumstances it has been ignored and it hasn't really been enforced? I think it's been neglected. There's no doubt about that. But that really comes down to the, uh, the commitment of the government of the day to commit themselves to preserving Aboriginal cultural heritage. We're, we're undertaking two important projects as part of this, these reforms. One is we're making sure that the Duke and Gorge situation, that global embarrassment that happened um, some years ago, can never happen again. The other way of doing is going out and proactively working with the community to help the whole community come together to preserve Aboriginal cultural heritage for the future. That is the Premier Roger Cook with Nadia Mitsopoulos. 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour and Tabarak al in the studio with the news headlines. In the headlines, a man has appeared in a Perth court charged with murdering his partner in what police allege was an extreme case of domestic violence. 37-year-old Peter Damianovic is charged with murdering 35-year-old Tiffany Ann Woodley at her home in Bedford on Monday. In court today, Mr Damianovic spoke only to confirm his name. He was not required to enter a plea and has been remanded in custody. Mining giant FMG has argued it's not responsible for the alleged destruction caused to Injibandi land in the Pilbara during a landmark native title battle with traditional owners. The Injibandi Aboriginal Corporation are seeking more than $500 million in compensation for the company's operations at its Solomon Hub mine. And the Commonwealth Bank's boss says its record annual profit shows that the bank is in a position to support customers that are feeling under pressure. The big bank says annual net profit increased 5% from last year to nearly, to nearly $10.2 billion. CEO Matt Common says the bank anticipates the impact of rising interest rates will continue to flow onto how Households. More news at one. Thank you, Tabarak. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Half past 12 and a few thoughts after listening to the Premier Roger Cook just saying that, you know, despite the fact that the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act 2021 has been revoked and it's going to return back to those original laws from 1972 with some amendments, there is still a continuing obligation on all of you to not knowingly disturb Aboriginal cultural heritage. This from Peter in Albany. Read the Premier's change to the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. The Premier, Roger Cook, said they'd taken the best legal advice. From who? The State Solicitor's Office? What was that advice exactly? Why was it not sought sometime in the last five years that it took to form the legislation? And why is the Minister responsible for the worst legislative disaster in WA history still in Cabinet? He has to go, says Peter. And this from Paul in Cojanup. Could we start the conversation on changes to the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act with the simple question of what are we trying to do? I don't know one farmer that would intentionally destroy Aboriginal sites on their land as there are very few left due to land clearing over time. Mining companies need to destroy country to dig resources up. Any changes should be focused on the mining sector. Uh, have your say on the text 0448 922604 because we're continuing this conversation between now and the news at one, getting some reactions to the state government's announcement yesterday, revoking those laws, going back to the 1972 laws from Indigenous groups, pastoralists and also the resources sector. Be part of that conversation 0448 
922604. Right now, heading off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Joey Rawson, what is the story around the Southwest Land Division this afternoon? Yeah, so for this afternoon, um, there's not a lot going on. Um, it's basically rain-free, not just through the southwest, but um, through the whole state, Belinda. But we do have this interesting cloud band that's uh, developing offshore from the west coast, and that's going to extend over the southwest of the state um, during uh, tomorrow, and it's going to remain over the southwest of the state all the way through till Sunday when it starts contracting out to the southeast. So what that means is there is the potential... Um, to get some shower activity from this rainbound through most of the Southwest Land Division. And as far as numbers go, there's a fair bit of uncertainty because with weather features like this, it's hard to pin down exact amounts and exact locations where the rain's going to fall. But there's the potential through the Southwest Land Division and, and especially through you know southern parts of the Central Wheat Belt and the Great Southern um, to get around 5 to 10 millimetres, but also the potential for it to reach around 10 to 20 millimetres through the kind of middle part of that band. So, And that stretches basically from a line from Perth to about Esperance uh, for tomorrow. And then as we move on to Friday, it's a similar story. Um, five to ten millimetres throughout most of the southwest land division from you know this rain falling from this cloud band. But um, there could be a little bit more through the eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division. You know, potential falls getting into that 10 to 20 millimetre range through uh, the eastern parts of uh, that Southwest Land Division, stretching into the southern parts of the goldfields. And it doesn't start to contract out um, to the east until the weekend. So again, through the eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division, there's the potential to get somewhere around that 5 to 15 millimetres. And, and it's not until Sunday when it um, sort of moves towards that uh, southeast coast that uh, things will uh, be less as far as rainfall goes. So it is quite an interesting cloud band that's uh, yeah moving over the southwest, Belinda. It sounds like a joey. What about specifically looking at sort of that uh, Midwest part of the Southwest Land Division. I know there's a lot of farmers in that patch that are really looking for any kind of rain at this point and have been for most of the season. Is there anything in store there? Yeah, so it's a really good point, Belinda. The boundary or the northern boundary of it um, for tomorrow is going to be somewhere between sort of Geraldton to Kalgoorlie. So um, some of the southern parts of the Midwest may get stuff, but the closer you are to the boundary, the less you're going to get, if you know what I mean. Um, it does extend a little bit further um, north, that uh, northern boundary. So uh, somewhere between Shark Bay um, to um, not Mekithara, but uh, maybe like Leonora. So uh, that would get into the Midwest. But again, it's the lower end of the rainfall amounts um, because it's on the northern part of the boundary. And then as we get to Saturday, it starts slipping further to the southeast away from the Midwest. So yeah, the most chance it is on Friday and, and some of the southern parts of the Midwest will we'll get something out of this. Thank you for honing in on that patch. Let's take a look now at uh, northern, and I know you have gone into the eastern parts a little bit, but any more detail for us? Yeah, so through the north, the winds are pretty light. And, um, we've got this trough that's uh, basically over the north of the state that's uh, going to move across. So light winds, um, yeah, basically rain-free conditions and 
you know, quite warm conditions. And I think Broome's around that 32 degrees for, for the next four or five days. So, um, yeah, certainly uh, nice in the north of the state. And in the mornings this afternoon, what have you got? Yeah, so we've had that front that moved through uh, yesterday. So we've just got uh, a strong wee morning on the Esperance Coast and the Eucala Coast. And thank- that's it. Oh, thank you, Joey. Appreciate that. It is 23 to 1 and taking a look now at the rainfall figures with Richard Hudson. Yeah, until 9am today, no rain at all anywhere in the entire northern and eastern forecast districts. But in the southwest land division, uh, there was a little bit around. In the central west, Badgingara had seven. Mora, New Norcia and Waradaji East recorded five. In the lower west, a little bit more. Araluan, 14. Bindoon, seven. Bungandore and Chidlow, 13. Dwelling Up had 41. Kijigan up six. Jinjin West, five. Glen Eagle, 21. Huntley, 16. Jandicott, 10. Jaredale had between nine and 12 across three locations. Julemar Forest, 5, Carnet, 18, Lake Chittering, 6, Lancelin East, Millenden and Minston Park all had 5, Manjara had 9, Mount Solis, 14, Mushay, 6, Pinjara had between 17 and 22, Serpentine, 7, Watning, 5, Werribee had 8 mills. And then in the southwest, a bit less than that, um, than the lower west, Beadleup had 7, Collie, 8 to 10 mills. Harvey, six. Four Acres and Margaret River, five. Mount William, 19. Northcliffe, eight. Pemberton, six. And Shannon and Walpole Forestry, both recorded seven. A bit more in the southern coastal region, though. Albany, 14. Amalup, seven. Shane Beach and Chillenup, eight. Dalyup Park, seven. Denbarker, nine. Denmark, 11. Esperance and Inglebourne, seven. Jacob, six. Many Peaks, nine. Metler, five. Oakmarsh Farm, nine. Stirlings North, 10. Stirling South beat you with 12. Tamar, 8. Tolina Downs, 5. The Duke, 7. And Wellstead, 5. Then in the Central Wheat Belt, not that much, unfortunately. Uh, Babakin and Long Forest recorded 5 mils. East Beverly and Mount Noddy recorded 6. And Mount Westdale and Querriting, 5 mils. And then in the Great Southern, Badgeb up 6, Boscobel 14, Chaming up 17, Cherry Tree 10, Quartering 9, Cranbrook 16, Darken 10, Dumble Young had between 5 and 6, Franklin 5, Glenrose and Highbury East recorded 9, Holt Rock 6, Catanning had 8 to 9 mils, Cogen up 15, Cookerin 11, Coolin 5 mils, but that's over 2 days, Maradong 10, Narragin 7, Newdigate 6, Nyabing had between 4 and 7 mils, Pingaring 8, Pingerley 5 to 6 mils, Pingrup East 5, Tambalup had 12 over 5 days, Tunney 11, Wagen 7 to 8 mils, Wandering 8, Wilgarra 17, Williams 8 to 12, and uh, just north of there, Williams North had uh, 10 mils. Great, thank you for that, Richard. 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour and just before the news at 1, it's off to Katanning today for the results of the sheep and lamb sale. Tracy Kilner along pretty small yarding today but she'll go through the details for you before 1 o'clock. The traditional owners of Jukun Gorge, the PKKP, say the state government's decision to scrap the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act and replace it with the 1972 laws is a backward step. Dr Jordan Ralph is the Heritage Manager with the PKKP. He was shocked by the government's decision. 
I really thought that there was a, an avenue for us to fix the guidelines, which were the major problem of that Act, um, and to do some more community education around it. But, yeah, the, the repeal of the Act and to go back to uh, legislation that was deemed by just about everybody to be outdated and culturally inappropriate was just, it was just disgusting. It's a backward step completely, and that's probably an understatement. The Premier, Roger Cook, says he understands the PKKP's disappointment. I'd obviously ask him to to bear with us. Uh, we're bringing the uh, 72 Act um, back into um, in the role that it played, but we're making some simple but effective amendments that will significantly improve um, that that particular Act. Now, one of the key components of the the Duke and Gorge inquiry was to criticise the fact that Aboriginal people did not have a right of appeal under the under the 72 Act, and so we're going to change that. Additionally, that there was the critique that the Aboriginal people parties were gagged by other agreements that they had with um, the mining company at the time, and our new amendments will explicitly forbid that sort of activity. Well, not everyone thinks it was a backward step to abolish the brand new legislation. The chair of native title group Mirawong Gadgerong Corporation in Kununurra wants the next revised Aboriginal cultural heritage legislation to be designed so everyone comes out a winner. Lawford Benning says the government's backflip shouldn't change the way anyone conducts themselves on native title land. It really doesn't matter, you know, which legislation it is, but anybody working on MG country or our lands needs to come to us in the first instance and notify us and take our advice. What did you think of the Cultural Heritage Act when it was in place? Well, I don't think anybody's had a chance to understand it or to do what we needed to do with it anyway. It only came in and next is out again. Did you at MG Corp feel like you understood it at your end as native title holders? Well, I suppose like any legislation, Alice, it's, it's, it's learning about it, but understanding it, what does it really mean to us? Going forward, if you had the chance to speak to Premier Roger Cook, what advice would you offer him if he was putting forward a new Cultural Heritage Act, a revised one? Well, look, it's like anything, um, Alice. If, if, if any legislation, regulations come out in a way it does, we have to understand it. And then if we like it or not, well, then we're going to ask the right questions. We'll ask the questions to, to understand it and to get it clarified to us so we can best fit our model or best way of working with it. If everybody wins, that's, that's everybody wins. You see what I'm saying? So... I guess development, you know, um, building, infrastructure, agricultural parcel, whatever it may be, how it needs to be. Everybody in, the, in, in that area of development needs to have win-win situation. Lawford Benning, he's the executive chair of Kununurra Native Title Group, MG Corporation, speaking to Alice Marshall. 17 to 1. Anthony Dan is a traditional owner from the Murchison region. He welcomes the government's scrapping of the new legislation and hopes this is the start of some fresh consultation. It gives us an opportunity, hopefully, to then have some further conversations with people about, you know, designing an act that's suitable for everyone. Um, You know, there are people that are never going to be happy with certain things. However, I think we, we, we need to be able to do this together and be sitting in the room together to, to develop this, to tick the boxes for everyone. You know, I mean, the farmers have made a big, you know, in our upheaval about it, they, 
threatened to go to Parliament today and do, do a, a protest. I actually said to my wife last night, maybe we should go as well, because I'm not really happy with the, the, the act as it is. You know, you got, you got the, the miners as well. I mean, and some of those guys, you know, in the discussion leading up to this has been, you know, granted some exemptions in relations to, you know, what they can do or what they're required to do um, for a period that, uh, you know, we as Aboriginal people weren't even considered in those exemptions. Anthony Dan, who's a traditional owner from the Murchison region, speaking to Chris Lewis. And a detailed summary of the reaction from a number of Indigenous community leaders to the government backflip on the legislation is online for you now. And overall, it sounds like most of the leaders are saying that the government's backflip has left them confused and suspicious. So to read through that, that article on the Indigenous response to the government's announcement, just go to the ABC Perth News homepage. It's a quarter to one here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. In the last few months, a lot of the talk associated with the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act has been hypothetical. Landholders talking about their fears about what they might have to do or what they won't be allowed to do. Luke McMullen is an arborist and grows mangoes in Kununurra. He's had first-hand experience with the frustrations over the legislation that's now been scrapped. Some of our business um, involves vegetation management and um, land clearance um, for fire breaks or bushfire um, risk mitigation. When we look at what was implemented with the now ex-cultural heritage laws, it was classified under the tier system to be a tier three activity for many of our activities. And that required approval from a, a lark, which we found out didn't actually exist in Kununurra at all. So we were stuck trying to push through um, these changes um, and work with what was there, but there was nothing there to work with. And you understood that you had to go to relevant native title groups. And did you go down that track? Yeah, that's correct. And we explored that option and um, rightfully so, they weren't in a position to be able to help us at that stage um, as they were still working through the changes themselves and um, waiting for their relevant appointment, if that was to come at all, from, um, from state government. Can you tell me now that the Act has been revoked, assuming there'll be a revised version of it coming again someday soon, what would you like to see in a new Cultural Heritage Act? Uh, so definitely like, the first thing is um, we don't want to see another... Duke and Gorge come in again. Like the whole reason that this came in, um, we don't want to see that happen again. So um, we certainly want to have that protection there for the cultural sites, first and foremost. But what I would want to see is a act that is a lot more user-friendly for both the traditional owners and for the um, persons conducting activities to, to operate through. And when that changes do come in, that the relevant support and... Um, infrastructure surrounding it is actually in place and ready to go. It, to me, felt like there was a, a lot of rules in place without the relevant backing behind them. Um, and we completely want to um, comply with the, the, the rules and regulations and understand the importance of, of why they're in place. But um, it was just difficult when um, they weren't initially there. Luke McMullen, Kununurra-based arborist and mango grower, catching up with Alice Marshall.
12 minutes to one. Wendy McWhirter-Brooks and her family have run Limestone Station at Marble Bar since 1997. She agrees with Luke McMullen and many others that there needs to be a simpler system to deal with Aboriginal cultural heritage. I think it's very sensible at this stage that they have abolished the idea of the larks, the local Aboriginal um, heritage consultant committees. That's important because they weren't set up. What I am hearing from the Aboriginal people that I speak to is that they're not happy that they weren't consulted. This was just delivered to them. Now, there would have been consulting. Consulting would have gone on at a high level but people on the ground are saying they don't understand. So that's the Aboriginal people are saying they don't understand. I attended information an information session um, in Geraldton. My son attended the information session in Port Hedland. And while what was described was difficult and it was going to be very expensive for pastoralists and, and landowners in general, the concept of calling for some responsibility on the Aboriginal heritage and looking after Aboriginal heritage wasn't a bad idea. But that the department, when we spoke to the department, we called the department looking for answers. They didn't know. Local government didn't know what was going on. I think the amendment we need to see is the one that says, let's remove the six-year statute of limitations on doing damage, on willful damage, and pull it back to 12 months. This Act has been reported as recently as yesterday on the ABC as the Dewark and Gorge Act. It's not. It is not. It's not about that. It's about protecting all heritage. But for pastoralists, yeah, let's toss it out, get something, get something that's easy to work with, simple, and doesn't appear as though it's a draconian hammer slammed at... Um, you know, at all parties who are involved. So I guess where to from here? Um, what would you like to see happen now to, to make this system work for pastoralists and, and for uh, Aboriginal people? Make sure the department knows what's going on. That's that's the big one. That's the big message to government. If you've got some plans in place, make sure your department know, knows what's going on and also consult widely. Find out what people's capabilities are they need to go back and consult widely, make sure that they you know, that people on the ground know what's going on. Get your teams out there talking to the elders in Indigenous communities. Get people to sit down and have a yarn and, and you know, so that the people are confident with what's going on, you know, across pastoralists and, you know, across the Indigenous people. But the, they railed against it so hard, you know, as well. That concerns me because I think that means that the legislation was confusing them, not assisting them as well. You know, and I know you're asking me about pastoralists, but I've got to take it back to the source. I mean, pastoralists, we're a business, just like mining is a business, and we need to be able to conduct our business. If the old Act had have been in place, it would be very hard for us to develop and to continue to develop our properties so that we can produce food in the most efficient way for the world because, as you know, West Australian pastoralists export their beef. We export up into Asia. So we've got to be able to produce beef efficiently. 
um, and, you know, whatever other things we're going to do, whether we're going to put in irrigation systems or we're going to grow vegetables or whatever happens in the future. We've got to be able to do it efficiently. Wendy McWhirter-Brooks, whose family has run Limestone Station near Marble Bar in the Pilbara, and she was talking to Eddie Williams. Eight minutes to one on the text. Matthew in Albany says, Governments in this country, and more so this state, need to realise agriculture is vastly different to mining. To group us together is ridiculous. Ag needs exemptions. For example, lime, dolomite and gypsum pits and gun law reforms. I congratulate the PGA and WA Farmers for coming together yesterday. The text is 0448922604. Warren Pierce is head of AMEC, that's the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies. He found out about the backflip while at the Big Diggers and Dealers Conference that's currently underway in Kalgoorlie Boulder. He welcomes the news and says it will give the mining industry some certainty but there's still questions that need to be answered. Um, I'm not surprised today. I was surprised that the government was prepared to undertake such a massive change this late in the process, but I think that was what had to happen. About three, three or so weeks ago, we came to government and essentially said, this isn't working the way we'd hoped. Um, we spent three years um, working intently with government, traditional and other industry groups to try and get to a new piece of legislation that was workable for industry, protected cultural heritage and gave traditional owners a greater say in the process, but ultimately it's just proved too complex. Um, the decisions that got made two and a half, three years ago, once you follow the detail through into actually implementing it, um, it just became unworkable. And I think uh, we had to go back to government and say, this isn't working, we need to make a change. I think our members will be really pleased to see the change that the Premier's made and announced today. Um, I think it's, it's the best decision that could have been made under the circumstances. It gives us a process that we're familiar with, we know well, um, but also with some amendments that will make sure that the events of Duke and Gorge don't happen again. So I think that's a good outcome. Uh, and now we've just got to make sure that this change and the, and the, and the time in Parliament it takes to, to repeal the new Act and get back to the, uh, the previous process um, actually sticks and lands well and, uh, and that the community can be confident that the concerns that they have have been, t have been addressed and the mining industry um, can continue working with digital owners as we always have um, to make sure we're looking after heritage. What are you hearing from your members, from people around the forum today? I mean, it doesn't seem like people are surprised, but maybe I think there's a bit of confidence there that it has actually, a decision has been made. Look, I think there's an element of relief. Um, I think people begin to become really concerned about the process they're trying to work through, but particularly the capacity of the traditional owner bodies to take on the level of work that was being directed at them. And I think you've seen that relief from some traditional owners as well. Um, so that's been a, been, a, been a big part of it. But now it's still questions. What does it mean now? Um, what do we do in the meantime? Are, are we still under the new Act? Um, when does the old Act take, um, take precedence again? Um, so there's still questions, um, but ultimately there's um, a, a feeling of um, a, a bit relief, but also um, an appreciation that government's taking the steps they need to take uh, to ensure that our industry particularly can continue to work um, with, uh, with, with certainty uh, and indeed um, that, um, that the messages and the voices from industry and others have been listened to. Warren Pearce from the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies speaking to Tara DeLangraft at the Diggers and Dealers Mining Forum in Kalgoorlie, Boulder. Today is the last day of the forum, which has attracted 2,700 delegates. It's five to one, and in some big news, just breaking news, Murray Watt, the Federal Agriculture Minister, 
has just stood up in Senate question time saying that the Department of Agriculture has notified him this morning that the CBH Group, so CBH Grain and Emerald Grain, have just been reinstated as exporters of barley to China, which means both those companies can now start exporting barley to China. Just repeating, Murray Watt saying that Emerald and CBH Grain have been reinstated as exporters of barley to China. Four minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Just before the Katanning Sheep Market today, I want you to meet 81-year-old Kevin Hal, who's been training Kelpies most of his life and is still winning sheepdog trials. In fact, he and his dogs competed in the Australian Utility Championships held in Western New South Wales just last week. I've had a dog ever since I was 16 years old because I came off a farm and my father always had a lot of dogs and I love dogs and uh, I love working with them. Kevin Howell is a sheepdog trial competitor who's dedicated to his sport. They've got great personalities um, and they, they read your mind. If you're having a bad day, they, they can make you feel better and uh, they're always your friend. <laughs> so your dog that you worked with this morning, can you tell me a bit about, about it? Yeah, he's only a young dog. Um, his father was a two-times national champion and his mother was uh, one of my brood bitches that I didn't trial because I don't trial very many of my brood bitches because they're usually too busy rearing pups. Not here. After 40 years in the sheepdog trial competition industry, Kevin says he has a lot to be proud of regarding his success so far and he's grateful for the opportunities he's had to compete. Well, we've won 10 national copy trials and one of those was in early this year in Victoria. That was our 10th one. And I was very pleased to make it a nice round number <laughs> because I'm 81 years old now and I don't know that I'm going to get many more opportunities and my dog's eight and a half years old, the best one, that won it for me. So I don't think I'm going to get... A, I might get one more chance, uh, but after that he'll be, he'll be too old and I probably will be too. Kelpie breeder and trainer Kevin Howells speaking to Ondine Slack-Smith about the Australian Utility Championships that were held at the end of last week at Ningen in western New South Wales. And Kevin and his dog, Karana Roy, ended up coming fourth. And as far as I know, there weren't any dogs or trainers from Western Australia competing at that event this year. A couple of minutes to one to the markets and a very small yarding at the Katanning Sheep Market today. 2,478 sheep and lambs were penned for sale. That is down 2,208 from last week. Tracy Kilner, what impact did the numbers have on prices today? Prices trended up this week with the lower numbers and processor demand. Mutton presented this week were generally heavier with ewes selling to $75 and weathers reaching $85 ahead. The quality heavy lambs gained with demand selling to $114. Light plain sheep again sold to low values. The lightweight lambs made up to $42. Heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight sold from $20 to $50 a head. Trade weight lamb gain selling from $50 to $81. And a quality lineup of heavy lambs sold to $114 a head. Store ewes made from $10 to $55 with a fleece. Medium weight sold from $50 to $75 with a fleece. And heavy weights over 30 kilos. Carcass weight returned $50 to $75 a head. Ram lambs made from $22 to $76 weight dependent, while the mature rams sold from $10 to $50 a head. 
This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for going through that. Great to talk to you today. I'm having the next two days off and two days off from next week. Michelle Stanley will be doing the Country Hour with you from tomorrow. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.